As always, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you tonight, opening God's Word. And I want you to take a second and meditate on that, okay? It's not another Wednesday that we're here because my parents made me. It's not another Wednesday where just the water falls. It's a Wednesday where we can come and open God's Word and study it together. The fact that we have a personal God that cares, that wants us to know Him, and how to live our lives, the instructions to do this, to know Him, and to live are right here. And what a privilege it is to always open this book, and to always study it. So if you came today, I'd rather be home, I'd rather be doing something else, hopefully this can motivate you to stop, to not think that way, and to think, wow, I'm here, and I'm going to study God's Word where some people around the world don't even have that opportunity, and we do. And let's, let's take advantage of it as we can, as much as we can. So when police officers, they get statements from those who witnessed the crime, they make sure to separate the witnesses when they're taking it. When they interview them separately, they take their statements separately. They do this because they don't want one witness to influence the other. This is also another important way to validate the statements. What do I mean by this? See, if the statements are similar in essence, but have different details, that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because the opposite could occur, where if you have a group of people writing statements, and all those statements are exactly the same, exact details, exact time, place, everything, the cops and the investigators look at that, and it's kind of fishy. They think these people got together to try to have the same statement. They cheated, and it, it's, not a, it's not as, it's not valid, basically. So for reliability, reliability purposes, it is better when different accounts of the same event occurs while maintaining the same essence. And I, I used to do this as well when I was in Irving ISD, and I did investigations. It was always the ones that were very similar those were the ones that were skeptical. And, and to a point where there was one school where three kids got together and they wanted to get a teacher in trouble. And they just said everything the right way. And it was like, and because we probed and probed, one of them confessed and like, it was all a lie. But it was because they were identical. Usually statements that are not identical are trustworthy. See, in today's lesson, we're going to learn about Jesus' triumphal entrance to Jerusalem. And as we study this passage, we will look at parallel accounts of this passage from the other gospel writers to find the same essence of this historical event. However, each account has details that others don't. And what does this do? Many critics have questioned the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, saying, how can we really trust Scripture if this story has so many different details and points of view? But rest assured, the fact that there are minute differences that do not change the entire meaning of the events that take in the Bi of, of the events that take place in the Bible makes it even more reliable. As we read the lesson today, know that this event actually happened, and that Jesus should be praised as He is the eternal Messianic King. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse one. The Word of God says, "When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to." Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, 
Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal the of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and the others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed, he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying this, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So we've been discussing the voyage of Jesus' last trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. We learn that the reason why Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem is to celebrate Passover, which he did with his disciples. He was accustomed to that. But most importantly, he was going to Jerusalem to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and to obey the, will, the Father's will, which is to give his life for us. So this journey begins in Galilee, and there's two stops before he actually gets to Jerusalem. And I have a map to show you guys so you guys can have a picture of what it looks like. So the first stop was beyond the Jordan River in Perea, where he taught on divorce, blesses little children, evangelizes the rich young ruler, talks to his disciples about rewards in heaven, and teaches them about God, how God saves those who he wants when he wants. So if you see here, this is Galilee, and this is beyond the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River here, and this is Perea, okay? So this is where all of those events just occurred. From Perea... To Jericho, he predicts his death and resurrection and is asked again by his disciples if they can have positions of power in his kingdom. They reach Jericho. Once they reach Jericho, in Jericho he heals the two blind men that Mr. Ben Scarborough taught last time we were here in Matthew, which was last Wednesday. And in today's scene, they have reached Bethphage, which is about three miles away from Jerusalem, and we will learn about Jesus' humble triumphal entrance to Jerusalem. So, if you look at Bethany, and right across the other dot there is Bethphage. And I just want you to have that reference, and Jerusalem is right here. So they're very close together. Cool? Today's outline consists of three events concerning Jesus' humble triumphal entrance. Three events concerning Jesus' humble, triumphal entrance. The first event are the instructions, verses 1 through 3. And the instructions, we're going to have the setting, and we're going to go over the actual instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. The second event concerning his triumphal entry is the prophecy, verses 4 through 6. We're going to talk about the prophecy and the fulfillment of this prophecy. The last event we're going to talk about in Jesus' triumphal entry is the celebration in verses 8 through 11. And we're going to talk about the crowd's reaction, the crowd's praises, and the crowd's commotion. The universal principle theme that we want to have in our minds as we read and meditate on is 
Worship Christ Jesus because He is the only eternal King. Worship Christ Jesus because He is the eternal King. So let's begin with the first event of this triumphal entrance. The instructions. Verse 1 reads, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the mountain of Olives. So before we talk about the instructions, let's, let's, let's talk about the setting. They had finalized their journey from Galilee, and they made it all the way to Jerusalem. A commentator wrote that those traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem would end up taking this path and pass through Bethphage. And by the way, Bethphage means house of figs. This trip took about 17 miles, all right, from Jericho to Bethphage. Now, Bethphage in itself was about three miles from Jerusalem. And it was actually 100 feet higher than Jerusalem, so it had a great view of the entire city of Jerusalem. So that's the city. Now let's determine what day it is of the week. A commentator wrote, In the year Jesus was crucified, whether taken as AD 30 or AD 33, the 10th of Nisan was the Monday of Passover week. If Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Monday, he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people as a nation, much as a family received the sacrificial lamb into the home. In so doing, our Lord would have fulfilled the Passover symbolism, even in the small detail, being received by his people on the 10th of Nisan. Continuing that perfect fulfillment, he was then crucified on Friday, the 14th of Nisan, as the true Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of the world. So we know that the, set, the setting takes place in Bethage, Bethage, and the day of the week is Monday. Alright? Now let's actually look at the instructions. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Jesus gives three instructions to the disciples once they reach Bethage. The instruction number one, the first instruction Go to Bethany, okay? Jesus sent two disciples. Anyone, anyone want to take a guess on who he sent? Two disciples. Yes. Okay. Anybody else? Fox. Any, one more. And it's, it doesn't really tell us who it was. It's, it's going to be the three, right? John, James, or Peter. Uh, most likely it was Peter and John since they are the ones sent to secure the house where Jesus would celebrate his final Passover. And we see this in Luke 22.8. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. So he sends two disciples. And the Greek word used for opposite means in the sight before you. So guess what? The village across Bethphage was Bethany. So it was right across. You could see the town right across from each other. Okay, And that's where he's send, sending them to go. They're both a couple of way, miles away from Jerusalem. Now, when he goes there, when he goes to Bethphage, what does he say? You will see, immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. See, the parallel passages to this event mention that it was only one donkey, not two donkeys. Matthew mentions the mother and the foal. Mark says in verse 2 of chapter 11, and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
Luke's account in 1930 says, saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So both Mark and Luke mention just the baby donkey. Matthew mentions the mother and the baby donkey. Why does this matter? Because historically some people would argue and say, how can we trust the reliability of Scripture if even in this detail we don't know what actually happened? Again, this is a good thing that it wasn't exactly the way it's, they, they didn't match exactly. Why? Because the fact is Jesus rode on a donkey. And that is, on all three accounts, we know that Jesus rode on a donkey. The reason commentators write that Matthew wrote the mother was because since it's a baby donkey, it's pro- it would have probably more reluctant to go with them, so the, baby, the mother donkey would have been easing the baby donkey as they took him to Jesus. Okay? Again, this detail does not make the other accounts wrong. It actually makes it more reliable. And the fact is, if I said, if I had Seth and Drew over my house the other day, and I'm talking to Matt, and I'm saying, yeah, uh, oh, Drew was, over, Drew was over my house the other day, and we were talking about computer stuff. Does that mean that Seth wasn't? I just didn't mention it. Right? It's not important. What's important is that he rode on a donkey. All right? The second instruction that he gives them is, untie them and bring them to me. Does this seem strange to you? If you were a disciple, you must be thinking to yourself, what if we get caught? Will people think we're stealing? John mentions this confusion in John chapter 12, verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. A commentator explained that it was not common or custom for people just to come and get animals without permission. That, w- that just didn't happen. So the Lord anticipates this and gives them the final instruction in verse 3. Sorry, the third instruction, which says, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. If anyone here means the actual owners of the baby donkey, or simple bystanders are just looking and saying, here are these people just taking random animals without anybody's permission. Notice that Jesus mentions Lord. And the Greek word for Lord here mentioned is translated to the one with superior power, supreme power. Those hearing would know that it was God needed the donkeys and they would be happy to do so either wanting to obey their Savior and wanting to worship Him or God's, the Lord's intervention in moving their hearts and allowing them to do so. Regardless, it was going to happen. We also see these types of instructions by Jesus multiple times in the gospel where he commands people to go and tell them what's going to happen, and it happens. For example, Matthew 26, 18 through 19, when we get there, it says, And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Mark 14, verses 13 through 16 says, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whatever he enters, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. It's interesting that in both accounts, 
three times that we're seeing it right now, when Jesus speaks and he commands, what do the disciples do? They obey. They obey. Jesus, you said it. It's so. Now, Matthew, what is the theme of Matthew again? Jesus is king. What is Matthew trying to convince the Jewish reader in Rome? That Jesus is what? King. So why do you think this is important to mention? It shows his what? Yes, it shows his power, his divinity as God, his omniscience, right? That he knows everything. And he knew, he knew what was going to happen. So Matthew's writing this so the Jewish reader can say, guys, look, this is God. He is the true Messiah. Look at what he did. He said this was going to happen, and it happened all the time. Multiple times it happened. Now, what is something else that Matthew usually does in his account in the Gospel of Matthew that others don't do? trying to prove Jesus is king. What is, what is specifically, what is specific to Matthew that he does that others don't? Yes, he, he quotes a lot of the Old Testament. He's telling the Jewish reader, hey, you've read your Bible, you know, you've read this, what you've read, the fulfillment of what you've read is actually Christ. And here he does it with a prophecy. He does it with a prophecy. Now, John briefly mentions this prophecy in his account of the triumphal entry, while Mark and Luke exclude it. Let's look at the prophecy concerning this triumphal entry. This is event number two, the prophecy. Verse four. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The Greek for beast of burden means a pack animal, a domestic animal used as a pack animal or mount, usually a donkey. See, Matthew mentions the prophecy to the Jewish audience to prepare them for the world, what they're about to read, Christ's triumphal entry. See, Matthew's been trying to convince the Jewish reader the entire letter that Jesus is king. He is king of an eternal kingdom, not a physical one, and is using the same prophecies that they would know hoping that something would turn in their mind and the light bulb would go off in their mind saying, you know the prophecies that you've studied since you were young about the coming Messiah? Look at the prophecies through this lens. You were expecting a political savior, deliverer from the Roman Empire, but he came as a spiritual savior to save us from our sins. And that's what he's been doing. That's what he did. That was his ministry. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. Can you look at that? Can you see those prophecies through that lens? Why wait? For a Messiah still to come to save you. He's already came. And I can show you and I'm proof to you prophecy through prophecy through prophecy. And that's just not the Jewish reader reading this in Rome during the time that Matthew wrote it. This is to the current Jewish uh, believers of today. Where they would read this and say, you know the scriptures. Why are you waiting for another Messiah? Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And look, let me prove it to you. Because look at all these prophecies. And look at the fulfillment of these prophecies. Guess what, guys? Only the Holy Spirit can change a heart. And He can change a heart through the reading of His Word. So all we got to do is be faithful and preach the Gospel, preach the Word, and the Holy Spirit will do its work to whoever listens, not just Jews, but anybody. This prophecy is found in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. 
He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. So you may be asking, why ride a donkey and not a war horse? Right? The Messiah, the great Messiah, Jesus the King, why would he ride a donkey and not a great Arabian strong horse or what are the Clydesdale horses? Big and mighty. See, in the Middle East, the tradition was that kings only rode war horses to war. And they rode donkeys to non-warring cities as a sign of peace. This was done purposefully to show the people that he was coming into Jerusalem for peace and not war. A commentator wrote, He was not at the time intended to come in earthly splendor or to reign in earthly power. He did not come in wealth, but in poverty. He did not come in grandeur, but in meekness. And he did not come to slay Israel's enemies, but to save all mankind. The incarnation was the time of his humiliation, not the time of his glorification. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was anything but triumphant. But by the standards and purposes of God, it was exactly as it was meant to be. Why? Guys, they were so blinded to their own wants that even though they saw him riding on a donkey, not a war horse, they still praised him as one who would liberate them. They were praising their desires and their wants rather than the actual king that was in front of them. And we're going to see this in a second. You would think, okay, the Messiah is going to deliver me from the Roman rule. He's riding a donkey. I don't know. I've been doubting his ministry the entire time. Why am I all of a sudden going to change and going to start chanting, Oh, Son of David, Hosanna, save us, as he rides a donkey. We're going to flesh that out in a bit. So let's praise God because he gave us this prophecy as one of plethora of signs to validate the Messiah. Zechariah prophesied this hundreds of years before this came true. And then we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in verses 6 through 7. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colts and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. See, the disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them. As mentioned earlier, the disciples were obedient to Christ. Maybe they had a lot of questions in their mind, but at the specific moment, they simply obeyed him. In Mark's account, you have some bystanders asking the disciples, hey, what's going on here? What are you doing? In Luke's account, you have the actual owners of the baby donkey saying, hey, what are you doing? What's going on here? And in both accounts, they both say, the Lord needs them. He'll give it back as soon as we finish. In both accounts, the bystanders and the owners are okay with it. The coach mentioned here is the outer coat that was worn by those at the time to protect from weather. Uh, it is the same quote that was mentioned back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. I don't know if you remember that, but it's basically, usually people had two, kind of like an undergarment that was very thin, and then a coat that was thicker, and it usually was their blanket if they slept outside to keep them warm. It was pretty much the only type of clothes that they ha- the poor people had. So this was valuable. And the disciples took off their coats, and they put it on the, the donkey. Why? To serve as a saddle, a comfortable saddle for Jesus. 
So now we have the king, the Messiah, entering Jerusalem as a peaceful king, riding on a donkey. This leads us to our last event in today's theme, the celebration. In verses 8 through 11. But before we go there, I want, you to get, I want to give you some context of what's going on here. Have you ever wondered why people all of a sudden were praising Jesus as king? Why all of a sudden? It's been three years of ministry. Why all of a sudden are they so excited about the Savior, the King? Why the commotion now? Obviously, it's God's working so that Jesus will fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and be obedient to the will of His Father. But what did God use in His providence to accomplish this commotion? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. According to John, the events we're going to talk about happened six days before the humble, triumphal entry. So, six days before Jesus comes into Jerusalem, we're going to read what occurred and what started and what God used in His providence to create this commotion amongst the Jews to have them be celebrating Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. We're going to skip a lot of verses, so follow along with me and jump as I, as I jump. Verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. Verse 3, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Basically saying, Lazarus' death right now is going to serve a bigger purpose. And you'll see what purpose it's going to serve. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How does that even make sense? If he loves them, if he loves Lazarus and Lazarus is sick, he's going to go immediately. But why does he wait two days? We're going to find out in a second. Verse 7. Then after, he, then after this, he said to, his disciples, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Verse 16. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow, fellow disciples, Let us go also go, so that we may die with him. The fact that Thomas says that is because the Jews wanted to stone Jesus, and wanted to kill him. And that's why, remember in Mark's account, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, the crowd were amazed that he was leading this this group towards Jerusalem, and that's why some in their minds thought that well, this is the time our Messiah is going to come and is going to deliver us. He's going to face death, but we know he's not going to die, and we're going to be, and he's leading us. In verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. How many Jews? Many Jews. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, verse 38, 
Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now you see why he was, let me wait two days more. I, want, I don't want any doubt on anybody's mind that when I go there and I resurrect Lazarus, that there's any doubt that I did what I did. That's why he purposely waited two days to go after he was told about Lazarus' sickness. Verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Let's move on to chapter 12. Verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, verse 17, so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he performed this sign. That is the context. That is why there's thousands of people hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem celebrating Passover, but word got out. Six, day, six days of word going out saying, hey, Jesus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. I was there. I saw it. He was four days in the tomb. There is no way anybody could have done that. Jesus did that. He is, he is the Messiah. He is king. That is the commotion. That is what God used providentially to have all these people for this moment, for this time, for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Now with this in mind, let's look at the crowd's celebration. The crowd's celebration. The first part of the celebration is the crowd's actions. What did they do? Verse 8. Most of the crowds, most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The Greek use for most of the crowd refers to a large number of people. Extremely large, remarkably big in size, number, quantity, magnitude, or extent. There's a lot of people, hundreds of thousands. I read a commentator, about 2 million people were in Jerusalem at that time during this Passover, and it was estimated about 200,000 would be in this procession of Jesus going to Jerusalem and riding on the donkey. They too placed their valuable coats on the floor for the king. The laying of the coats come from past traditions of what was done for some kings in Israel. And we find this in 2 Kings verse, chapter 9, verse 13. 
Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. They were also, what, cutting branches and putting them on the floor as the king passed with his donkey. We know that they were palm trees because John's account says they were palm trees. A commentator wrote, The idea of branch cutting and placing them on the floor came from the history books of when Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem after defeating enemies that attacked Israel during the period after the Jews' exile. So this is how they celebrated a, a Jewish war hero. They cut off uh, palm trees and they set them before as he was entering, as he defended Jerusalem. John MacArthur wrote that this could have been a symbolic representation of Revelation 7-9, which says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches that are in their hands. As crowds placed their coats on the floor along with palm tree leaves, they praised Him, which leads us to the second part of the celebration, of the crowd, of the crowd celebration, the crowd's praises. The crowd's praises. Verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was a large group of people ahead of Jesus. There was a large group of people behind Jesus. And as mentioned earlier, there were thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people saying this. The Greek, used, the Greek word used for shouting means to cry out, to utter aloud, often with joy. Hosanna means, oh save. It is an exclamation of adoration. The son of David. Hosanna, oh da- Hosanna to the son of David. Oh save us, the son of David. See, these Jews, if they were practicing Jews and they knew their Bibles, they would know that the long-awaited Messiah would be from the lineage of David. They would have known passages like Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. They would also know Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That comes from Psalm 118 verses 25 through 26. All Lord, do save. We beseech you, we beg of you, O Lord, we beseech you, you do send prosperity. Verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. MacArthur states, this was also a psalm of deliverance, sometimes called the conqueror's psalm. Almost two centuries earlier, the Jews had hailed Simon Maccabeus with the same psalm after he delivered the Acre from the Assyrian domination. So what do you think they wanted Jesus to save them from? Oh, save. Oh, Santa. Oh, save, King of, King of, uh, Son of David. Oh, save us. One group could have actually potentially been believers and understood the spiritual kingdom 
and we're looking for a spiritual salvation. Could have been a fact, spirit. The other group, and probably the larger group, were probably thinking salvation from their oppressors. Oppressors. Salvation from their oppression. I mean, think of Jewish history, right? Think of Jewish history. Every time that Israel falls into idolatry, uh, God allows for other kingdoms to take over, and then after His wrath is, is poured, he, he gives grace, and he brings men to liberate them. And this, is, and this is common. This is something that happens in the history of Israel. Right? The Babylon, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and you know, 70 years later, they're free. They're free for 500 years under no rule until the Romans come. So they could have been thinking this. Finally, salvation from oppression. The people could have also been thinking, as the commentator explains it, like the twelve, they had long wondered, this is the people, like the twelve disciples, long wondered, if Jesus were truly the Messiah, why had he not used his supernatural powers against the Romans? Now at last, they thought, he will manifest himself as conqueror. They were about to celebrate Passover, which comm commemorated the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. What better occasion could there be for the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, to make the ultimate and final deliverance of his people from tyranny. This is what they were, was in their minds. Like, hey, that's why they were happy in commotion. That, that's what Thomas is like. Hey, I'll go with you, Jesus, even if it means we're going to die. Because you're going there. You know you're going to die. I know you're just going to lay down. You're going to fight back. And you're going to use your powers to do so. And this is in the mind of a lot of the disciples. We know that. Why? What did, what did the, the, the brothers ask Jesus? The mother asked Jesus, hey, when they, when they die, or can they be next to you in your kingdom, one on the left and one on the right? They were thinking of a physical kingdom. They were thinking that this is it, our chance. We left everything. Now we're going to find the joy and the, and, and, and the privilege of leaving everything because now we're going to rule with Jesus in this physical kingdom. And we know that that's not the case. This leads us to the last part of the celebration, the of the triumphal entry, the crowd's commotion. The crowd's commotion in verse 10 and 11. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The, group, the Greek word used for stirred means to be agitated. And it's the same word that's used in, in, uh, in the storm of Galilee in Matthew 8. And it's also the same used to describe the earthquake that occurred at the death and resurrection of Christ. This is groundbreaking, all right? This is something, this, these are news, this news is, is groundbreaking, okay? And they're asking after the dust settles down, after all those that weren't in the procession, they're asking, hey, who is this? Who is this? What's going on? And what did the crowd respond? What did they respond? It's right there in the verse. 10 or 11. What did they respond? This is a prophet, Jesus. Does anybody see the stark contrast? How did they go from Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest? 
Blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. How do they go from shouting all this to, he's a prophet. From Nazareth. The same reason they would scream the terrifying words to crucify him a couple of days later. Matthew 27, verse 22 to 26 says, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, a riot, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See that to yourselves. Then all the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. How could someone go from Hosanna to the Son of David? Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest to a prophet. To crucify him. To a riot because they wanted to crucify him. To his blood shall be on us and our children. How? How could one do that? Because it's not the crowd. This crowd is us, guys. It's not that crowd. It's every person who is spiritually blind. They were blinded by their own desires and views of Jesus. They wanted momentary pleasure of living in peace and not under oppressive Roman rule instead of being more concerned about their spiritual eternity. The reason why so many people went from praise to punishment was because Christ did not meet their expectations or terms. They were expecting a political liberator, not a personal Messiah. They wanted temporary happiness instead of an eternity with the Father that came with the Lordship of Christ. Does that sound familiar to you? There may be some of you here today thinking the same way. You want your version of Jesus. You want your version of Jesus. You want the blessings of Jesus without Him being Lord. You want the blessings without His Lordship. Guys, it does not work that way. It did not work for the crowd, and it will not work for you. Every time, if you have not bowed to Jesus, if you had not accepted Him in your heart, if you had not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, take back the accept in your heart, but it's not biblical. Not back, not back in the days, you know, it creeps up, but guys, if you have not made Jesus your Lord, you are the crowd. You are the blind crowd that saw him on a donkey, that knew he came in peace, yet were still screaming, Save us, O King. Save us, O Lord. You'd rather have him far away and dead than living and Lord over your life. They were right in calling him Messiah. They were right in praising him. 
But their spiritual blindness cannot let them see that there was even a bigger enemy that needed to be defeated. More than the Romans, it was sin. And Jesus did not live up to what they wanted. They rejected him. They rejected his lordship. Just like today. When people hear a false gospel. Come to Jesus and you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. And when the person does not receive health, wealth, or prosperity, they reject Jesus and say, you know what, that's not the Jesus that I'm looking for. I'm out of here. See, Jesus is king regardless of what you think, of what version you want him to be. He is king. He is Lord. He is sitting at the right hand of God. So how do we apply what we learned today? Number one, worship God for being the savior of our sins and not the savior of our daily problems. He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we, we have done in righteousness, but through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, of His grace. He saved us. That is more than any problem that you want saving from. That is more than any pleasure that you want to live. Eternity is forever. And He paid the price for that. Make Him Lord. Number two, be encouraged that Christ is God. Look how many prophecies came true about Christ. He is who He said He would be, and He has resurrected. And to have all these prophecies confirm Him as, as Messiah, it should bolster our faith. It should encourage us. Our faith is not irrational. Jesus is alive because we believe through faith, but historically we can prove it as well. And last, praise Christ for who he is and not what he can do for you. Don't be blinded like the crowd was of their version of Christ. Guys, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never believed in His name and repented of your sins, don't let another day pass before doing so. We will all die one day and we will all be judged and the verdict is guilty. Guilty. There is none righteous. There's not even one. Even if you think you're good, like Brandon taught, even if you keep the entire law but stumble at one point, you are have made be guilty of all, says James. The standard is perfection, and none of you will ever, ever attain that. You want to go to heaven on your own? You want to go to heaven because you're a good person? Perfection. That disqualifies all of us here. So we will be judged. We will be guilty because of our sin, because we rebelled against God, because we're children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But God, as soon as man sinned, it didn't take God by surprise. He had a plan. He would send his son, his only son, to die on the cross for your sins. To live the perfect life you and me couldn't live. To store up all that righteousness for you and me that we can never present before the Father. And he did that. And the Bible says... That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe that He raised from the dead on the third day, that you will have eternal life. That if you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, that if you repent from your sins, He's willing and able to forgive. 
that you make Him your Lord and your Savior. There are no riches. There is no pleasure that can be more worth more than making Jesus your Lord. The world has nothing to offer you. All those pleasures, all those desires are momentary. They will go away. And you will be chasing them your entire life and know that you will never, ever, will never fill you the way you're thinking. And then it's too late because you're like, well, I don't want to make Jesus Lord because I'm not willing to give this up. I like living this way. I want to do this. I want to do it this way. I want to do it my way. You might not have an entire life to live. And Jesus gives us his gift freely. Everyone open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God, I'm going to leave you with this. You will bow your knee to Jesus. You will do it. In heaven, on earth, or in hell. But one day, all knees will bow before Him. And I hope this motivates you, not to scare you, because there's nothing, there's no point in, in scaring you, but that you have fear of God, that He is holy, and He will judge sin, and He will judge the pleasures that we don't want to give up for Him. Oh, yes, He will. But He's gracious and loving and offers us salvation if we cry out and call to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your powerful word. Thank you for showing us who we would be without you. We would be the crowd calling out, praying to save us, and in a couple of days calling to crucify you because you did not meet our expectations. Because we wanted to serve our own kingdoms and not make you Lord. Thank you for showing us the reality of what we could be if it wasn't for your Holy Spirit that opened our eyes to our condition see ourselves in as sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you for your gospel. That yes, you will judge sin and yes, the verdict is guilty, but you offer salvation to those who trust and put their faith only in you, Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for allowing us to spend eternity with you. Help us understand that the pleasure of, these wor- of this world will never compare to an eternity with you. Help us understand that it is more important to serve you, to love you, to follow you than whatever this world has to offer. Holy Spirit, please convict us through your word to change, to regenerate those who need regeneration. Father, please do so. And I pray that we can call you king forever and that we can all bow our knees before you voluntarily, Lord, and not be forced to do so because you are worth it. Thank you, God, for allowing us to come before your throne and call you Abba Father. And your love is so great 
at the same time while you're a holy God and just you're a loving God. And we thank you for being both. It is in your name we pray. Amen.